Let's ask now for God to send his spirit among us as we engage together with the mind of God uh, revealed by the spirit of God uh, through the word of God. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, fathers, we open today uh, to the book of Judges in chapter 5. We pray that your spirit will give us not only understanding with our minds, we very much want that, but we also pray that your spirit would move us cause our hearts and our affections, our emotions to be engaged with the work and the promises and the faithfulness of Yahweh our God. We thank you for the work of your Son, for the power and the presence of your Spirit in us, and we pray that your Spirit will give us the illumination that we need. We, we confess that because of the limitations of our humanity, because of the sin that remains, that we, we're not able to understand your word as we ought to understand it unless, unless you help us, unless you meet with us. So we pray that today, Holy Spirit, will you come and meet with us through your word so that we might praise the true and living God. Amen. You may be seated, and, and if you turn with me to Judges chapter 5, Last week, of course, we were Judges chapter 4, and and I I gave serious thought to to combining these together because we really need to consider Judges 4 and 5 as a matched set. We have, in a very unusual circumstance within the Word of God in general, and you you know, God speaks to us in a lot of different ways. He speaks to us through narrative. That's what we saw last week, where God simply tells us through the voice of a narration, Holy Spirit-inspired, He tells us what happened. There are other times when God speaks to us in apocalyptic imagery. There are other times when God speaks to us through his gospels, where he's recording to us the very words and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many sections of the scriptures where he speaks to us through poetic verse. What we find in chapter 5 is exactly one of those situations. Now what makes this unusual is we have in chapters 4 and 5, two chapters that are considering the very same event One in narrative prose and the other in poetic verse. That happens only one other time in all of the Bible. It happens in Exodus chapters 14 and 15, where you know the story that God leads his people across the Red Sea. He miraculously delivers them, destroys Pharaoh's army. And then chapter 15 is Moses' song recounting the same event. So it it ought to really cause our our mind's attention to focus when we see this kind of phenomenon. Again, it only happens twice here, twice in the Scriptures. So we want to take 4 and 5 together. And one of the things that we have to sort of ask is why why is this necessary? Why does God do it in this way? Um, Throughout the book of of Judges and and large sections of the Old Testament, particularly this, this section of Israel's history, we have a almost like a journalistic account. And I don't want to... I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I'm thinking old-school, faithful, classical journalism, where there's a good research and honest accounting of what took place. But there are also certain editorial decisions, what's most important to include in the narrative, and what is of less importance. And I've remarked several times already in the book of Judges, there are a number of things that our minds might wish, I wish I knew this. Here's a detail that I just wonder about. I wonder what happened here. That, that detail was excluded. When in the the mind and wisdom of God, there are certain details that have been excluded so that we can focus on those things that matter most. But now, again, in this unusual circumstance, we have a song. It's a victory song. 
in chapter 5. But God gives to us that and also the narration. So why isn't it sufficient just to give us the narration? Why then is, is it also recorded for us a song? Because aren't we just kind of, just give me the facts, ma'am. Just give me the, give, tell me what happened, especially some of us guys, right? I mean, let's be honest, we, we, just give me the facts, save the fluff, I don't need that, I just want to know what happened. And I'll sort it out from there. But God in his wisdom has given us this song. Let's step back and think for a moment. Because in every, every culture, in every place on the planet, throughout history, music has been important in one way or another. Why? What is it about music? What is it about a song that's just sort of part of the human condition, that stirs us in various ways? Why, why would God speak to us by way of song? Well, one of the answers to that is it's very memorable. You know this even when you're teaching young children. One of the first things you teach them about the, the alphabet, they learn a song for that, right? They learn songs to help them memorize the books of the Bible. They're little choruses or little ditties that, that are, that, and, and, and if I'll mention some of them, you'll be mad at me because they'll be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. But they're memorable. Years ago, uh, Gina's grandmother was struck with Alzheimer's. And it was that we would go and visit her regularly and it was, it was sad to be in one of those memory care units where many of the, the residents there didn't even know who, their own name. They didn't recognize loved ones. And Gina's grandmother was one of those. Sometimes she would recognize us, sometimes she didn't. Just a dear, dear, sweet, godly lady. But you know what happened? Andrew could sit down in the lobby and play Amazing Grace on the piano. And all the residents would kind of wheel over and they would sing. And they knew every word. They couldn't remember their own names. They couldn't remember their, the, the names of their loved ones, but they knew the words to familiar hymns. Why? In God's wisdom, music has a profound effect upon us. And it, in a sense, even can unlock something that was locked away. You couldn't have asked them, hey, what are the lyrics to Amazing Grace? And they probably would have responded with, I don't know what you're talking about. But you play the piano, and they began to sing, and they could go right along with it. And there is a sense even now, even to those of us who's Minds are not infected with, that, with a disease, a vicious disease like that. Music has a way of, in a sense, unlocking something in us, something that's sort of tucked away. There is a, a, a feature of music that captures and evokes our emotions, our affections. Now, like any other good gift, that can be misused, but we know this is, this is true, and sometimes... We, we look at the landscape around us, and we see just such a, a rampant um, ethos of emotionalism. And so sometimes we overcorrect and think, well, I'm going to be a stoic. And that the, the true Christian faith, you know, we're all about sound doctrine and the truth of Scripture, and it's an emotionless, affectionless, cold faith. Judges 5 serves as a sort of remedy for that kind of, of approach. It helps to correct maybe our thinking and even our practice. We are not called to a sterile, emotionless faith. We are not to be driven by emotionalism, but neither are we to err on the other end and, and, and not, have, not to have our, our hearts well up within us with appropriate emotions as we interact with the Word of God. Now, Judges 5, it's very interestingly, when we look at our Bibles... Chapter 5 comes after chapter 4. Well, duh. 
But we assume that that means chronologically. But in this case, it isn't so. In a minute, I'll read the text, but the very, the very first line of chapter 5 says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. On what day? Well, the very day that God delivered Jabin, king of Canaan, into their hands. The book of Judges, including chapter 4, wasn't written until probably many generations later. Maybe well over a hundred years later. So for a period of Israel's history, the only account they had of this amazing event was this song. And then later, God gave them, through his spirit, gave them the, the, the narrative form of what happened. But it's, it's, it's important for us to recognize the importance in God's canon, God's, God's revelation of himself, that the song actually came first. That's instructive to us, I think. But here's what I want us to take from, from chapter 5. As we read through this, as we read through this song, I've entitled the, the sermon, Our Victory Song. It is not only the victory song of Deborah or of Barak or of even all of Israel, but it is our victory song because the great themes that are present here in this song are the very themes with which we as Christians ought to delight and ought to sing and praise God. So as great as the victory over Sisera and Jabin was, the message of Judges 5 is even, even grander. It's even more magnificent. Chapter 5 is not merely Deborah's song. It's not merely Barak's song. It is our song of victory. And we see this in, I'm not going to go through the, the, the poem line by line. In fact, you may be disappointed. There may be a line that I don't even address at all. Because I'm looking at, what are the themes here in the song? What is the substance of God's people's praise to him? And there's three sort of movements or three big themes that come out. One, and all of these center on the person and work of Yahweh, on the Lord our God. And the first one is that Yahweh is the one who creates and rules and governs everything. We're going to see, not only does he rule men and circumstances, but even creation itself is under the subjection of Yahweh. And we need to be reminded of that. And a song helps us, in a sense, feel that. Secondly, we sing praise because Yahweh has delivered us from our fiercest foe. Yahweh has delivered his people from our fiercest foe. And thirdly, Yahweh has promised ultimate rest from enemies even greater than what we find in Judges 4 and 5. So let me read the text together. Let's read the song. I won't sing it but I will read it. And I encourage you and ask for the Spirit to work in us that we can understand and see and sing along with Derek and Deborah. Uh, uh, Derek and Deborah. Barak and Deborah. How's that? Sing along with them these great themes that it is Yahweh who rules, it is Yahweh who rescues, it is Yahweh who gives rest. Hear thou the word of God. Then Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, saying on that day, saying, when the leaders led Israel, when the people volunteered, bless Yahweh. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. As for me, or ask for me to Yahweh, I will sing. I will sing praise to Yahweh, the God of Israel. O Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. 
The mountains flow to the presence of Yahweh, this Sinai, at the presence of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the paths had ceased, so travelers went by roundabout paths. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless Yahweh. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, as you travel on the road, muse aloud at the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places. There they shall commemorate the righteous deeds of Yahweh, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of Yahweh went down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the mighty ones. The people of Yahweh came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of a scribe. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. It was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley, they rushed at his heels among the divisions of Reuben, There was great persistence of the heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks among the divisions of Reuben? There were great probings of the heart. Gilead dwelt across the Jordan. Why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and dwelt by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives, even to death. And Naphtali also on the high places of the field. The kings came and fought Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanat near the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of silver. The stars fought from heaven. From the courses they fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horses' hooves beat from the dashing, the dashing of of his valiant steeds. Curse Meroz, said the angel of Yahweh. Utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of Yahweh to the help of Yahweh against the warriors. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of whom, of women in the tent. He asked for water and she gave him milk in a mighty bowl. She brought him curds. She sent forth her hand from the tent peg, or for the tent peg, and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she beat Sisera. She smashed his head and she crushed and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell violently devastated. Out of the window she looked and lamented. The mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariot tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens, for every mighty man. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered, dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoil. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Yahweh. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was quiet for 40 years. 
you can hear as, as the poetry unfolds, you, you can hear the difference, I think, between, and I would you know, give, challenge you to go back home and, and, and read through chapters 4 and 5 consecutively. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear for yourself the stark contrast in, in the, not only the, the content, but just the, the energy there that's, that's in the, the narrative versus that which is in the song. But we notice the, very, in the, first, the first observation is that Yahweh creates and rules all things and all men. And we see this true in, in multiple ways. Yahweh rules and governs even in hard times. Yahweh rules and governs everything, even when it looks as if this is a miserable time. How can Yahweh be the one doing this? I mean, look back near the beginning. We begin, the, the, the song begins with, with a picture of Yahweh on the move. He's coming from Mount Seir. He's, he's coming to Sinai. But then we're told that in the days of Shamgar, in the days of Jael, there were no travelers. The open highways were not accessible. Such was the lawlessness of the land and, and the oppression of the enemy. that Even the peasants, those who would ordinarily be out working in the fields, working the land, taking their goods to market, buying and selling and trading, that ceased. Everything had to go underground. The most basic, ordinary circumstances of life weren't happening or were happening under severe duress. And when such times come, when such times come, we think, how do we reconcile this? We know, our minds tell us, because the word tells us it's true, and as good Christians, we're going we're gonna to be orthodox, and we're going to confess God's in charge here. This is God's in charge here. But sometimes are our hearts actually comforted by that fact? If we're honest, we, we will know the truth, but our hearts remain unmoved by it. The anxiety still grips us. Fear still prevails upon us, even though we know what is true. So we have this sort of sharp relief, don't we? This sharp contrast between what the Bible says about God's ruling and governing all things contrasted with our lived experience on a given Tuesday when the wheels fall off, so to speak. How do we reconcile this? This is, isn't it, though, the call, the consistent call of Scripture? to see with eyes of faith and not eyes of sight? Isn't this the call of God's people, the testing of God's people, to say, will you believe me or will you believe your own eyes? Will you believe my word or will you believe your own ears and what, what the world is telling you? This is a call to faith. And, and, and the, the song here reminds us of Yahweh's faithfulness even when we can't make sense of what's going on around us. And again, this is, this is a stanza, in a sense, out of the victor's song. This is the theme that God's people ought to sing and ought to delight in singing. I think about some of the hymns that we, we love to sing around here, and, and one of them is, is How Firm a Foundation. Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine.
I mean, this, this is the cry of our, of our faith, isn't it? When things don't look like we think they ought to look. When, when, when our lived experience seems to differ so substantially from what we read about in the Scriptures, what's, what, how things are supposed to be. And the song helps us to recall that. But there's another way that we see Yahweh ruling and governing here in this song. He rules and governs even when his people don't respond or respond badly. Yahweh's ruling, Yahweh remains in charge, Yahweh remains sovereign over every detail even when his people don't get it. Even when his people are stubborn and rebellious. Even when some go and some don't go. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the refrains. It maybe strikes us as odd. Here in verses 16 and 17, for example. He's just, the, the song talks about how, um, how Ephraim has gone up against the Amalekites, how Benjamin joins the fray, and Zebulun, and Naphtali, and Issachar. But then he comes to Reuben. There was, there was great persistence of the heart. Reuben, it wasn't that Reuben didn't, the tribe of Reuben didn't think about coming to help in this work. They gave it some thought. They, they pondered it. They worked through it, and they decided, we're not going. 16, why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks among the divisions of Reuben? There were great probings of the heart. They, they really gave it some thought and decided against it. Gilead, which is part of Manasseh, dwelt across the Jordan. Why did Dan... Stay in the ships. Asher sat at the seashore and dwelt by its landings. Meanwhile, Zebulun was willing to die. I mean, these were mostly farmers. We're, we're told earlier that part of the, the misery of their time was not only was trade impossible, but there wasn't a shield or spear seen among 40,000 in Israel. This was a disarmed population. 900 chariots of iron the greatest army they could imagine, and the call goes out, some said, you know, we've thought about it, we've run the numbers, we've considered carefully, uh, and we've decided we're going to stay put. We're not going to take the chance. Others will go and die if this is what's necessary. How do we reconcile? How do we make sense of that? How How do we reconcile the fact that some will go and some will not go. And sometimes today, we might be tempted to think that justice is only served, that the victory can only be won if we can get unanimity and if every Christian will go up together. If we can all, basically, we can't get anything done until or unless we can all agree together and all go in one motion and, and speak with one mind and one heart. That's the only way it'll work. But the song reminds us that God is in, is in control. God is ruling and governing every detail, every moment, every, every micro detail, whether his people get it or not, whether his people even participate or not. And see, we might be, those of you particularly, who have this sort of, it's a good gift of God, this natural sense of, of justice. And he said, but it's not fair that Dan didn't go. It's not fair that, that, that Gibeah just, just set, out, set it out. That's not fair. And we can be so obsessed with that, we miss the greater point. Yahweh delivered him, his people, even without that unified front. And sometimes today, I think we might be tempted to think that 
that all Christians have to be united in prayer or united in some cause or, or united in a particular action in order to be successful in whatever the current culture war is. The victory is not dependent upon us being unified. We ought to be unified. We ought all to go up together. But God's hand is not stayed. He is not thwarted in his plans if we don't get our act together. God is not held back in that way. One of my favorite passages in John, is in the very last chapter of John's gospel, John 21. You, you know the story. Peter, of course, has denied the Lord, and now he's fishing. He sees, they look out and see Jesus on the shore. Peter, outer garments out, he's, he's off the boat into the water, swimming over. And Jesus meets him on the shore. Jesus already got fish cooking for dinner. And we have that threefold exchange. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Keep my, feed my lambs. And so Peter is, is humbled by his own sin, by his own betrayal, but he's encouraged because Jesus says, one day your hands are going to be bound and you're going to be led away to death. And, and John tells us by that, Jesus signified by what manner Peter would die. Peter found out you're going to, one day you will be crucified. Now, for most of us, that wouldn't be an encouraging thing to get that kind of news. But for Peter, it was actually... Very encouraging, because he had just suffered the failure of his own flesh, his own fearful nature, and he had rebelled and betrayed his Savior. And now Jesus is telling him, you're going to be faithful this time, because I've prayed for you. Now, here's my favorite part. We know Peter, James, and John were sort of that inner circle among the twelve. They were closest to Christ. They were, they were friends. These were brothers. He'd just been fishing with John. And Peter looks over, see John, sees John kind of leaning back against Jesus, and Peter says, what about him? Remember Jesus' answer? It's none of your business. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But he says, what is it to you if he lives until I return again? In other words, John, or Peter, eyes right here, your job is to focus on me and not worry about what I choose to do with other men. That's a lesson we need to remember, isn't it? God may choose to be victorious and not use me at all, not use you at all. He may do it despite my stubborn rebellion and yours. But he also may do it when we, we are discouraged to think we have this sort of Elijah syndrome, right? We find ourselves sitting under the tree going, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only faithful one. And we can do that as a church. Lord, we're the only faithful church. Now, hopefully we know that isn't true, but we can. We, our, our flesh will sort of whisper that, we need to be reminded, no, even if that were the case, it's more than enough for Yahweh to win. But there's a warning here as well, though, perhaps even a rebuke to us as Christians. The Lord Jesus Christ, our God and King, has called his church to battle. I mean, he has called, caused, called us and caused us to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We are called to go up. When Jesus, his last words to his disciples, right before he's caught up into the clouds, as he ascends to heaven, he gives the great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's a command of conquest. That's a battle cry. It's a command from our king to go up 
every tribe among you, everyone among you to go up together, to go up in faith, believing that God will, in fact, give the victory. And Jesus told a parable because he anticipates this kind of stubbornness. It wasn't just in the days of Shamgar and Jael that this kind of stubbornness among the people was present, is it? In Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives a parable. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I have to go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I, and, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. Jesus warned. He warned his hearers. And when the call comes, we are to go. We are to go up in faith. We are to believe the promises of our God. Dale Ralph Davis makes this comment that's, that's insightful. He says, note the theology of the text. Though Israel's deliverance is Yahweh's sovereign and mighty work, his people are not to sit passively by. They are to participate actively in his mighty work to come to the help of Yahweh against the mighty ones. It speaks ill of us when we are satisfied to rest secure while our brothers and sisters are struggling and suffering. It reveals a heart unbound by the bonds of brotherly love. It is tragic when any Christian, apostle or other, has to say, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. So we are called to go up and to go up together. We're called to engage together. Now, it's a variety of gifts and a variety of circumstances, and it's beyond the scope of, of this sermon to, to think about those, those distinctions, but it is important that we, we all have a role to play. God has given us gifts, so we, are we using those for the sake of his kingdom and for his glory? I'm still on my first point, by the way. But take heart. This is the longer one. But there's, there's a third way where we're still thinking about how, how is it that, that the song celebrates Yahweh's rule, Yahweh's sovereign governance over all things. And we've seen how he, he rules and he governs even during bad times. We've seen how he rules and he governs even when other believers don't cooperate. But he also rules and he governs both the seen and the unseen world. It's one of the most striking to me features of this song is how Yahweh rules and governs both the seen and the unseen world. See, our minds naturally go to where our feet walk, the earth, the things that we can see, things that we can touch, the things that we can handle, the things that we can manipulate with our hands. We think that's what's most real. But all the way through the scriptures, all the way through the scriptures, we're, we're told, we're, the, the, the Holy Spirit sort of pulls the veil back and shows us there's an unseen world with powers that we can't comprehend, with mighty forces, both good and evil, that we can't comprehend. Creatures, no doubt, but heavenly creatures, powerful creatures, spirits that are, many of them, dark spirits, that rule and govern. And we can become discouraged and distressed when it seems as if darkness is winning. See, sometimes we can kind of lulled into this George Lucas sort of view of the world that there's a balanced force of dark and light, and we don't know from day to day which is, which is the dominant force. Well, the Bible tells us there is a darkness. There, isn't, there are evil spirits. 
but it is, there's no balance. Yahweh rules, and he governs all. And, and we see this picture here. We see a picture of kind of this cosmic battle. In chapter 4, again, deals with the places where men's feet tread. And we have, we have chariots. We have horses. We have Sisera on foot running across the dirt and entering into a tent, being covered by a rug. It's all very tangible. It's very earthy. Chapter 5, on the other hand, gives us a more of a, of a cosmic perspective. It expands that field of battle to the place of the stars and the heavens. Saints, this is our victory song. Look at verses 19 and following. The kings came and fought. They fought the kings of Canaan and Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. Now, is, is this meant to be taken in a, in a literal way that maybe there are beams of light or lasers coming out of the stars or a star crash? No, it, it's, a, it's a poetic image. It's a song. But it's to evoke in us the, the strong emotive sensation that this is how Yahweh rules. It is not only the affairs of men. It is not only where Heber happened to have pitched his tent. That's important but even the stars in their courses are under the direct rule and governance of Yahweh. The river of Kishon swept them away, the ancient river, the river of Kishon. They call it a river. It's really more like a, a wadi. Or in Texas, we might call that a dry gulch. And, and it would, in, in the, when it would rain on such hard, packed ground, even just a quarter of an inch or so of rain could flood this gulch. And perhaps that was the very means that God used, either to, to bind the wheels of the chariots in the, in the mired clay or, or maybe flooded and, and swept them away. But, the, but the, the whole point is not specifically how God did it, but that God rules even the heavenly spheres. There's nothing outside of the reach of his hand. And isn't this exactly what we see? One of the, the, the great marvels of the, the person of Christ, according to his... his um, the God-man, he is both man and God. And even his apostles were astounded. When they're at, we're on the ship, and, and the Mediterranean Sea erupts in this spontaneous storm, and Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up, Master, Lord, aren't, don't you care that we're going to die here? Remember what Jesus said? He rebuked the wind and the waves. Peace, be still, and instantly, instantly, they bowed to his command. Yahweh rules even the heavenly spheres, even creation itself. Another of our favorite hymns, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious. Thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight, all praise we would render, O help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. This is our victory song, saints, that our God rules and governs everything. In bad times, whether his people cooperate or not, he rules and governs even the stars in their courses. Nothing is beyond his reach. It matters not how hard our days are, how, how other Christians respond to the commands of God, or how, our, how much our vision is limited as we consider this earthly sphere. 
None of those things matter with respect to God's ruling and governing all things. In in our victory song, we're reminded, nothing restrains the hand of God. Nothing holds back his purposes. Nothing thwarts his will. So let's consider another great note in our victory song, and I'll move through these a little more quickly. We see this particularly in verses 24 and 27. Yahweh has delivered us from our fiercest foe. And there's this dramatic image that takes place. We, we saw it, again, in the narrative section. We know what happened. That Sisera ran into uh, Heber's tent, and Jael, the wife of Heber, is out there. says, come in, come in, come in. He says, I'm thirsty. She gives him milk, kind of lulls him to sleep, covers him with a rug. While he's sound asleep, she drives the tent peg through his head. Kills him. But in a song, we, we get a, a very intense look at this scene. The song pauses long. It, it, it sort of lingers on this gruesome scene. Look at verse 26. She sent forth her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she beat Sister. She smashed his head. She crushed and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell violently. Devastated. You ever thought, isn't that a bit much? Don't kind of think to yourself, after the first line, I got it. One of the features of Hebrew poetry is in Western poetry, we rely on meter, kind of rhythm, and rhyming. Hebrew poetry is not like that. It relies on repetition. For, in, for all the ancient Near Eastern poetry relies on, on parallel statements, um, repetition for emphasis. But it also, this is a celebration. In the song, it is as if Israel is savoring this, this deliverance of Yahweh like you would savor a juicy steak. You don't just wolf a steak down. You chew on it carefully. You, you want to really bring out the flavors. Now you're all hungry. You're welcome. We, had, we used to have this um, device. It was a, a DVD player that had this little USB stick where you could download filters. And you could plug it in. You could put a, a movie. This is back when we actually we could rent movies at a store. And you could put a DVD in. And, you, and it, would, it would edit out you know, either language or inappropriate scenes or, or, or violent things. And I remember watching things like um, Lord of the Rings, and you could see the dwarf you know, swing his mighty battle axe. And just a second before it split the orc's head open, the camera cut away. And it would edit out just a fraction of a second. So you didn't miss the, 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 the thrust of the movie, but it would, it would edit out that graphic scene. Or you could see you know, William Wallace thrust his mighty blade, but right before it went to the chest of his foe, the camera would cut away. Well, Judges 5, when we get to this scene, it's the exact opposite. It's like it loops it. And just, we're going we're we're to see the gore. Why? Why is that the case? I mean, is God just reveling in violence? Or we just celebrate gore? No, that's not the message at all, is it? The song of Deborah and Barak is not so that when it comes to, to Sisera's death, we can just rejoice in, in the brutality. But the Spirit of God intends for our mind's eye to linger here on this gruesome scene. Why? Why is that? Because, number one, it reminds us of the severity of sin. 
It's as if God wants to hold this scene before our eyes. And, and it's, it's memorable. And, and by repeating this phrase, it's memorable in the eyes of his people. He says, this is the just penalty for sin. Don't forget this. Bla- bra- have this branded into your brain that you can remember. This is the just penalty for sin. This is, this is the just recompense. This is the just payment for anyone who opposes God. Don't forget this scene, Israel. When you're tempted to whore after the nations, the gods of the nations around you, remember, this is their just reward. Don't forget it. But there's something else that's here. As we see the language, and and your mind may have gone there, when when she beat Sisera, she smashed his head and she crushed and pierced his temple. Where have you heard that language before about a head being crushed? That's the promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Immediately after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against him, and he cursed the serpent, it says, one day, one day the seed of this very woman, the very woman that you tempted and led into sin, one day her seed will rise up and crush your head. True, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. What we find in jail here is a reversing of the curse. Here we have a seed of the woman who crushes the enemy's head. And the language is deliberate. Again, as they sang this song, as their emotions are stirred, God the Spirit wants their minds to go back to that promise. That promise in Judges or in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. One, one author said, all of Scripture grows out of this verse meaning Genesis 3.15, as the oak tree grows from the acorn. It's the regulus star in the constellation of oracles, the heart of the lion. This verse is king of Scripture and sits enthroned as the first and ancient utterance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good, isn't it? This is the first and ancient utterance of the gospel. And then we see this worked its way out through the, through the prophets and through the apostles. And I'll just, I'm just going to give you a few examples, short examples, but, but we, could go, we could spend the next three sermons just looking at such texts. But in Isaiah for, for, uh, chapter 53, speaking of the suffering servant who would come, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastise, or chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We see in jail a reversal of the curse. In Colossians 2, Paul highlights for us how, how what Christ has done as a consequence of his death, burial, and resurrection. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Revelation chapter 12. I mean, we have this, this apocalyptic imagery in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And the last one, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So the song celebrates the fact that the greatest enemy of all has been defeated. 
and, and we can sing, this is because this is, this is, again, our victor song. We have even greater light than Deborah had. We have greater light than Barak had. We have greater light than any of those under the old covenant. Remember Jesus' words, talking about John the Baptist, among those born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. And yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because we have greater light. We've seen through the scriptures the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've tasted those promises that he will come again. And I love this. We sang this, this just this morning. Oh, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. And this is my favorite verse. Jehovah bade his sword awake. Oh, Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blade must slake. Thy heart, its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the judgment that we witness here from the hand of jail against Sisera has been poured out upon Christ. God has poured out his holy wrath against your sin so that you don't have to bear it. The sword of God's judgment fell, happened to be a tenth peg, but it fell hard upon Sisera. That is the just desert for any of us who have rebelled against God. We all have fallen short. And yet God has satisfied his wrath in Christ. Well, then we have this sort of strange verse that follows, where the lens, as it were, turns to Sisera's mama. Now, did, did Deborah have some prophetic insight about what was happening in the home? Of, it's probably not. Again, this is, this is a poetic expression. But, it, but it's designed to show the extent of the mockery and the shame and the totality of the defeat of God's enemy. So there's a picture here of Sisera's mother at home looking out the window wondering, why, why haven't I seen his chariot come home? I mean, he was due home for dinner. I mean, an hour ago. He's not here. And then we have her own voice trying to convince herself. This is what moms do. Try to, you try to convince yourself sometimes, right? Oh, he's fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Her wise princesses would answer her, Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. He's just delayed. I mean, there was the, the, the battle must have gone so well, it's just taken longer than usual to collect the spoils. It, there, there's spoils the men are trying to divide up. I mean, they're trying to divide up the women that they've captured. They're trying to, I mean, gather all these fancy garments that they're going to bring home to their moms and sisters. And it shows us how God mocks his enemies. How comprehensive is their defeat. But it also, it's a reminder to the people of Israel, even as they sang that, apart from God's grace, this is your mom. Apart from God's grace, this is you. This is the judgment that would be due upon you if God had not delivered you. God was gracious to you. And it points also, I think, to the arrogance of the wicked. Because isn't this the frame of mind of the wicked who think they're so secure? We talked about this last week. Sisera was comfortable enough to lay down and sleep, thinking, I'm secure. In his pride, in his arrogance. But that's the wicked, isn't it? The wicked thinks, God doesn't see. 
God doesn't hear. God doesn't judge. And, and this points to that sort of complacency of those who are mired in their own sin, that judgment's not going to come, or I can repent tomorrow. And it's a reminder to us that even though the wicked are often surprised when destruction comes, they shouldn't be. Yahweh's defeat of his enemies, our enemies, is going to be total, it's going to be complete. So in our victory song, we sing the song of Yahweh's defeat of our greatest enemy, sin and death. But there's one more great theme that's in this victory song. And we see this in the very last verse. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Yahweh. Let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was quiet for 40 years. Yahweh has promised ultimate rest for our enemies, or from our enemies. He's promised us ultimate and final rest. Our enemy is not merely a wounded enemy. He is a crushed enemy. He is a defeated enemy. And it reminds me of, of the cry that we see in Revelation 6. We have this, this picture of persecuted saints, and they're, they're crying out to God, Oh, long, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you tarry? How long will you wait? But we see in Revelation 5, immediately before that, John's taken a vision of the very throne room of God. And, and he, along with the elders, weep because they say, there's no one here worthy to open the scroll. And then, then, as it were, the heaven's camera turns to a lamb. A lamb with scars. A lamb who is worthy. And then, the elders rejoice. And all the people begin to sing. They sing a new song. Judges 5, in a sense, foretells, foreshadows the day that we will stand with every tongue and nation and tribe and people and sing together with one voice a new victor song. We can already sing today of the great themes of Yahweh and Yahweh's deliverance of us, but one day we will sing a victor song of the, of the victory being complete, of it being final. And do we, do we pray for this? Do we pray for God's kingdom to come in such a way? I mean, we, we want to sing that, that sort of victor celebration, but do we pray that God would give exactly that kind of victor? Do we pray for his kingdom to come? You know, our Lord Jesus taught us, and as we pray in the, 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 the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you realize that's a battle cry? When we pray, thy kingdom come, do you remember, you know that's a, that's a cry of war? As we've worked, working through our Orthodox catechism and the more, in the, our words they worship, we will get here in a few weeks, question 143 deals with this statement, that, thy kingdom come. What does that request mean? And here's the answer. Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. That's what we pray for. We pray, thy kingdom come. We're praying, may the, the victory be so complete and total, starting in me, starting in you. 
the word of God would take root, would subdue our own sin, and also that he would subdue all of his adversaries. Brothers and sisters, do you know the promise of of this kind of rest? The the kind of, 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 of rest that says, my sin has been defeated. doesn't mean that I don't continue to sin, but the power of sin is gone. For once I was a slave, I was in bondage, and now, by the grace of God, I'm able to say, no, I don't want that. I don't like that. I want something better. I want God himself. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul unpacks this idea here, and he says in verse Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This is our hope, saints. When Christ returns, in a moment we observe the supper, we testify together. We proclaim his death until he returns, at which point he judges the wicked. There will be no Sisera left standing. There will be no Jabin, king of Canaan, left standing. God will subdue every adversary. Just very briefly, let's think about how how do we think about Judges 5 overall? How do do we, we, sometimes we want to think, we study the scriptures, what do I do with this? And, and this is not so much what to do, but is, is, is how to think. But there are some, I think, some practical, tangible applications to this. And one of that is, 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 in a sense, to maybe give yourself permission. Brothers, some of that maybe applies in a double measure to us. To, to, to feel in response to God's work in you. To rejoice inwardly and outwardly at the victory that Christ has accomplished in you, in the subduing of your sin. And even particularly, when, when, when God has given you particular growth and mastery over a particular area of your flesh, to rejoice in that, to celebrate that. And if you find that you, you, that's not present, there's no sense of, 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 of feeling, of, of having your affections stirred. Then, then ask yourself, why not? What's going on in me that I'm, I'm, I'm dull? Because the, the, the experience of, of the Christian life in many times is, is we go through ups and downs. We go through seasons. But in those seasons where we gather for worship, the hymns fall on our hearts flatly. The sermon doesn't move us much at all. Even hearing of the plights of our brothers and sisters, we're just not really moved much. Why? 
Why is that the case? And first of all, you have to ask, are, are, are you really devoting yourself to the means that God has given of stirring those things up in you? Are you persevering in those? See, one of the things that we're, we just have a tendency to do when, when things are hard, we're like the, the old injured dog that crawls up under the porch and just growls at anybody that comes near. Leave me alone. I'll get well when I get well. God has not designed us in that way. God has designed us to share our suffering even, to share our sorrows, and to believe that, that he has appointed his people to carry those burdens with us. Are we willing to, in a sense, be vulnerable in that way? And again, brothers, sometimes that, that's, that's a, maybe a double application for some of us. There's a second application with respect to the song here. We ought to learn and sing the great and rich hymns of our faith. If this is our victor's song and the themes here, we ought to be faithful to learn these things, teach them to our children. How often can a believer say in a particular moment, I found myself singing this hymn and encouraged my soul because it was rehearsing the, the truth of who God is and what he has done. But with that, we, we need to encourage a skill in, in singing and, and playing instruments that even as you're making decisions as parents with your children, and many of you homeschool, as you're making those kind of curriculum kinds of decisions and time decisions, do you think about music and how God may use that to glorify himself and be a blessing to you and, and to your home and to the corporate worship? Singing is a skill. And I hear a lot of you say, oh, I can't sing. Well, you can get better at it. You can learn. But also, we ought to encourage the writing of new hymns. It's a discipline. It's an art that there are a few in the contemporary times doing it and doing it well. I think of the Gettys and some others that have, that have given themselves to that labor. But are we willing to think about God's particular victories and sing his praises for those victories? Judges 5 is a victory song. It's the victory song of, of not only Deborah and Barak and Israel, but it's, it's our victory song. And can you rejoice with, with all the saints when, when you hear the words of a victory song like Horatio Spafford penned? O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Yahweh creates and rules all things and all men in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. Yahweh has delivered his people from the fiercest foe of all, from sin and death. And Yahweh has promised saints a final rest for us. Let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. If that's not an image that doesn't grip your heart with respect to the anticipation of your own resurrection one day, then help you. The Lord has given us this, this beautiful image of even the sun rising in might. And that we have been given the promise that one day we will rise as he rose. We will be given a body like his. We will be given heavenly eyes to behold him face to face. Let's sing and rejoice what God has promised to us. Let's pray together.
O God, our Father, we, we pray that You will, will bless us by Your Spirit to rejoice in Your goodness, to rejoice in who You are, Your, your infinite holy character, to rejoice in Your mighty deeds, and to rejoice in Your promises yet to be fulfilled in us. Lord, help us to see with eyes of faith. Help us to sing and praise You. Help us to be moved by the love of our God and by the, the plight of our neighbor. Help us to be moved. Moved to act, moved to worship, moved to sing. We bless you and we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.